0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dicky, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel, and the pod- And on the podcast today, I'm joined by Professor James Morton, who will be talking about his new book, Byzantine Religious Law in Medieval Italy, which was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Um, Byzantine Religious Law in Medieval Italy is a historical study of Byzantine canon law manuscripts exploring how and why the Greek Christians of Medieval Southern Italy persisted in using them so long after the end of Byzantine rule. Um, The first part of the book provides an overview of the source material and the history of Italo-Greek Christianity. Um, The second part examines the development of Italo-Greek canon law manuscripts from the last century of Byzantine rule to the late 12th century. Arguing that the Normans' opposition to papal authority created a laissez-faire atmosphere in which Greek Christians could continue to follow Byzantine religious law unchallenged. Finally, the third part analyzes the papacy's successful efforts to assert its jurisdiction over southern Italy in the later later Middle Ages. Uh, While this brought about the end of Byzantine canon law as an effective legal system in the region, the Italo Greeks still draw on drew on their legal heritage to explain and justify their distinctive religious rights to their latin neighbors. Um, I will be discussing the book in more detail with James, who has joined me on the show today. James, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you very much for asking me here. It's great to be with you, Diki.
0: Sure. Um, Before we uh, dive right into the book, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you come to write about this book?
1: Uh, yes, of course. So um, I am a uh, Byzantine and medieval historian. Uh, I'm at uh, currently an assistant professor at the Department of History at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Uh, I'm actually originally uh, not from Hong Kong myself. I'm from the UK. I'm from uh, Scotland, um, and. The reason why I came to be writing this book is that it basically developed out of my Ph.D. study, uh, as with, I think, quite a lot of academics. Uh, this is my first book, and a lot of academics' first books come out of the work that they do uh, for their Ph.D. research. Um, so I uh, did my Ph.D. in Byzantine and medieval history at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, where I was very lucky to have... Um, a supervisor uh, by the name of Professor Maria Mavroudi. Uh, she's a great uh, Byzantine uh, historian and philologist. Um, and so, I, to trace the origins of this book and the research that went into it, we have to go back to a conversation I had with her one afternoon, a very sunny day uh, in Berkeley. Um, I was uh, discussing with her. Um, my ideas for what I should write about for my PhD dissertation. Um, and because it was a nice day, we were out for a walk, walking around the streets, and I was telling her all of the ideas I had. I was very interested at the time in relations between the Catholic and Orthodox churches in the Middle Ages, and I was very interested, I still am, of course, um, in the subject of the schism. This was the the medieval split or division between Uh, the Roman papacy and the Patriarchate of Constantinople, which of course developed eventually into what we nowadays call, you know, the the Catholic and the Orthodox churches. Um, So I was telling her about this and I was telling her about how I was thinking it would be interesting because a lot of people have approached this from a political or a theological perspective. I wanted to approach it from a kind of institutional perspective, like how did the institutions become separate? I remember she just said to me, have you ever thought about canon law? And I said, well, no, actually, I haven't thought about it at all. I really hadn't thought about it much up until that point. And she said, well, you should look into it. And I said, i need to look into it. And I learned more in general about the canon law systems of the Byzantine church and also the Roman papacy in uh, the 11th to 12th centuries. Uh, And I saw just how uh, sophisticated their scholarship and systematization was becoming at the time. Um, so it was something uh, I could tell there was something very interesting to look into here. And I, I do still have this view, or we can talk more about this later, perhaps, that actually law and legal systems played quite a large role in that schism between the Catholics and the yeah. Orthodox. Um, But the problem was, of course, when you're a PhD student, um, you can't write about all of canon law. That would be far too much. So you have to find a way to narrow your topic down. Um, And I had worked a little bit on Southern Italian history before that. um, And I knew that it was a really interesting place where Greek and Latin Latin Christians lived uh, alongside each other in very close proximity. Um, And I also knew that Southern Italy had uh, produced a lot of Byzantine manuscripts that have survived. Um, but it was a good way to kind of delimit the subject to stop me from writing too much. So I thought it's an interesting area. It's got source material, but it's not too much to try to work on at once. Uh, so basically, um, I started writing uh, my dissertation on it. A lot of the research that goes into this book was actually research that I did for my dissertation. Um, I spent about uh, nine months living in Rome. I, I, I went to Italy and I was very fortunate. I was able to base myself uh, in Rome and then travel to places like, of course, the Vatican Library, which is in Rome itself, um, places like Venice and Florence. Uh, I even at one point ended up going to Russia as well. Uh, I got the. I was very lucky to be able to go to Moscow uh, and study some manuscripts there. Um, so... Ultimately, I wrote my dissertation on it. It had a slightly different name when it was my uh, dissertation. It was a lot longer. Um, It was called, I think it was something like, it was so long ago now, I have to remind myself. I think it was uh, Byzantine Canon Law and Medieval Legal Pluralism, colon, the Southern Italian Manuscripts, like 10th to 14th centuries. Um, That was a bit of an unwieldy title. So it eventually just got shortened down to something more succinct, Uh, which is, of course, Byzantine religious law in medieval Italy. So uh, after I finished the dissertation, um, I started work turning it into a book pretty much immediately afterwards. Um, So after I finished my PhD in 2018, I had the opportunity to go to Rome again, uh, this time as um, a postdoctoral scholar at the British School at Rome. Um, uh, where I spent a very productive six months uh, working on the book. Then I actually, right after that, came here to Hong Kong, uh, which is where I finished writing it. And, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic hit very soon after that, so the whole process was drawn out a lot longer than it might otherwise have been, uh, but it eventually came out, as you said, uh, in 2021.
0: Great. Thank you for that. Um, uh, James, uh, it seems yeah, your book deals with a specific type of manuscripts, uh, which is referred to as Norman canon, that were produced in Southern Italy from 11th to 14th century. And part one of the book, in part one of the book, you deal with it uh, like in great length. Um, could you please tell us what a Norman canon is and why is it so important to understand them?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, um, actually, this is not a very well-known type of manuscript. Uh, I have to say, a lot of even Byzantinists themselves, even specialists in Byzantine manuscripts, do not really spend a lot of time and effort looking at these. Um, so, it's a type of legal manuscript. It is a a, a legal collection, so a collection of laws, uh, and it's specifically intended as a collection for the use by the Byzantine Church. Um, so. For your listeners who might not be familiar with this um, canon law, you mentioned this already, but canon law is effectively the law of the church. Uh, nowadays, the Catholic and the Orthodox churches both have their own bodies of canon law; uh, they have their own codifications as well and their own collections of laws. Um, so, um, canon—it's the word "canon" is originally a Greek word. It means a rule or a guideline, um, and uh, the first canons were adopted by the Christian church uh, quite early in its history, in the fourth century. or The first major canons, at least, uh, were adopted in the fourth century. Um, and they were effectively... Originally, they were just sort of lists of rules that uh, it was felt that Christians should follow. But over time, they increasingly came to emulate the, uh, the structure and the style of Roman laws. Uh, So, of course, this was a time when the Roman Empire still existed, it was very powerful, and the church began to model its laws on Roman laws. Now um, the Greek term, which was used in the Byzantine Empire for one of these civil laws, (coughs) excuse me, um, was nomos, and nomos is a civil law, and in the plural it's nomoi. Um, So nomocanon is actually a portmanteau, it's a combination of these two words, nomos and canon. Now, you might be surprised, why would they have um, a collection that combines both civil and canon law? Uh, Particularly in Western Europe, we generally think of uh, civil and canon law as being separate. Um, And in the the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, fought a long and at times quite um, bitter struggle to ensure the separation of church and state to prevent um, civil secular laws from being mixed too much with the laws of the church. <coughs> um, in Byzantium, on the other hand, uh, in uh, what was originally the Eastern Roman Empire, developed into the Byzantine Empire, they uh, took a very different approach to civil and canon law from a very early day, <coughs> early stage. So, from the time of the Emperor Justinian in the sixth century AD. Um, the the emperors would pass civil legislation that directly impacted the church in various ways. So they would pass these nomoi in Greek civil laws. And the reason why they did this, why they felt it was permissible to legislate on religious matters rather than just uh, secular or civil matters, was that there was an ideology that As Roman emperors, or we also would call them Byzantine emperors, but as emperors, they had been uh, put in place by God, and God had given them the responsibility to protect the church. So this meant that they had a kind of ideological uh, legitimacy when it came to legislating on ecclesiastical matters. So it became a long-running tradition, the Byzantine Empire that when um, the members of the church created collections of canon laws, uh, so they're, they're like reference guides, basically a collection of all of the, the laws of the church, they would also often include these civil laws as well, these nomoi, uh, and hence the fact uh, that they're known as nomocanons. So a nomocanon canon is a collection, to give you the short answer now, it is a collection of laws that affects the church, um, it is primarily uh, made up, of course, of canon laws. These are the laws of the church itself. Uh, but then they also include these civil laws, which are um, impacting the church in some way that are relevant to the church Now, what makes them, uh, in my opinion, interesting manuscripts to study? I think a lot of scholars probably just either, you know, uh, thought that they were only something for legal historians to look at or thought that maybe they're quite boring. You know, they don't usually have things like fancy artworks in them. Uh, They're not colorful or impressive to look at. Some are, but for the the most part, they aren't. What's interesting about them is that Um, unlike a modern legal codification, which will tend to be quite standardized in its content. So for example, if you look at codifications of law from the United Kingdom or the United States or Hong Kong or whoever you happen to be, um, in the modern world, they will typically be the same text. In every book you look at, they'll have the same printed text, right? This was not the case with medieval manuscripts. The medieval manuscripts had surprisingly low levels of standardization, because to create a medieval manuscript was extremely expensive. And we can talk more about this later if you're interested in it. Of course, they had to be written out by hand. There was no mechanical printing yet. at the same time, paper was not developed until the second half of the 13th century, and then modern paper comes even later than that. Um, so before that time, um, manuscripts had to be written on parchment, which is made out of animal skin. Uh, they had to synthesize inks and so on, You know, without any kind of industrial processes. So all in all, um, it took a, a very long time to make a manuscript and it was a lot of work and it was extremely expensive. What this means is that, of course, the people who purchased the manuscripts, the people who actually paid for them, they wouldn't necessarily want to pay for a complete collection of all of the laws in existence, right? They might want to be more selective about what they included. Alternatively, um, occasionally we do also have cases of patrons who might have wanted to include something extra in the manuscript. Um, so, for example, these nomo canons, they're not, not just collections of laws themselves, but they all sometimes include appendices added at the end, which contain things like um, erotapokrisis. This is a Greek word, which mean, literally means questions and answers. And we might think of them as being something like FAQs, you know, frequently asked questions. So like questions and answers about issues of law. They might include little legal treatises at the end as well. Um, sometimes they include surprisingly you know, unrelated things like short anecdotes from the lives of saints. So the actual contents of these manuscripts, in short, can vary quite a lot. And we can learn a lot about a, a manuscript's use and uh, the people who ordered it, so the people who owned and, or purchased and owned it. We can learn a lot just from looking at what was in the, the manuscript itself. We can also learn a lot about um, what the sources of the manuscript were, because since everything was written out by hand, you could only really copy the text that you had available to you. So if something is present in a manuscript, um, then it implies that it was present in the prototype, the the original manuscript that was copied. Or if something is absent, that implies that it maybe wasn't available. Um, There are lots of other things that we can look at when studying these manuscripts. For example, um, how well decorated are they? How large are they? How expensive is the material? Um, What kinds of inks are used and things like that? So altogether, um as manuscripts, why they're so interesting is not just that they can be sources for the actual text of the law. I think when people think of manuscripts, they often think of them as just sources for texts, but they're also objects, they're physical objects that people used, they, they, they were objects that people paid money for, they spent a lot of time working on, they were then stored in certain conditions and used in certain ways, and so from studying them as manuscripts, we not only see what the text of Byzantine canon law was, but we also will see what people were reading when they actually looked at that canon law and how they used it, how they experienced it. So it can tell us quite a lot, I think, about the contextual sort of social and cultural history as well as just the text of the law.
0: I see, right. Um, and these textual collections, uh, it goes back to uh, like 11th century, right? And I think you mentioned in the book also and these are like surviving texts. Um, can you tell us like, you know, like how did this text manage to survive till date? Uh,
1: yes. So first of all, I have to say to, to clear, uh, clarify this for our listeners, um, the surviving texts that we have go back to the 11th century, but there were earlier texts before this that no longer survive. Um, the the first Nomo canon, um, it, that, as we know it, was produced probably in the early 7th century. Actually, there is one very rare example of a nomocanon from the 7th century. Um, it doesn't survive in its original form, but fragments of it have been discovered as uh, palimpsests, which means they were reused for like another manuscript afterwards. Um, but the first complete manuscripts that we have, certainly from southern Italy at least, We have others from other parts of the Byzantine Empire that go back to the the 9th century. But from southern Italy, the oldest one we have is uh, from the 11th century. So to answer your question, how did they survive? Why do we still have them? Well, um, the answer to this in in a general sense is that it's the same reason why any medieval manuscript survives. That is the the fact that there was an institution uh, that uh, took the the effort to actually preserve that manuscript, sometimes more than one institution. Um, As long as there is an institutional context uh, in which a manuscript can be preserved, um, in many cases, it can survive up until the modern day. Uh, Of course, there are various things that can happen like natural disasters or fires, uh, earthquakes, floods, and so on, um, or people can lose things. So some manuscripts do get lost. But for the manuscripts that survived, uh, they survived because there were institutions that preserved them. Now, what were these institutions? Well, there's basically two main sources for these nomocanonical manuscripts from southern Italy. Um, The first one is monasteries. So uh, southern Italy had a rather large Greek population, uh, particularly in the region of Calabria in the far south of Italy. Uh, It's, uh, if you imagine Italy as a boot, Calabria is kind of like the toe of the boot. Um, And there were also some Greeks uh, in northeastern Sicily, um, and then as well in the Salento Peninsula, that's kind of like the heel of Italy's boot. Now in Calabria, a northeastern Sicily, um, there were quite a lot of monasteries that were founded. Um, now there were monast- the, during the Byzantine Empire when the, the Byzantine Empire ruled over uh, that area of southern Italy, basically from the sixth century up until the middle of the eleventh century. Uh, after which it was then conquered by the Normans, uh, who would eventually create the Norman Kingdom of Sicily. Um, <clears throat> Under the Byzantines, uh, a lot of churches and monasteries had been established. Um, The Norman conquest disrupted this quite a lot. But then once peace had been restored in the 12th century, when the Normans consolidated their kingdom, uh, particularly under a Norman king called Roger the de Hauteville, the Normans gave quite a lot of support actually to the local Greek population when it came to patronizing the foundation of new monasteries. Uh, There were many different monasteries founded under the Normans. Uh, Some of the most important ones uh, were at Rossano in Calabria, a monastery called the Patiron. Um, There was also another monastery um, in Messina called the Monastery of the Holy Saviour. In the book, I talk about various other monasteries as well, but to keep things simple for now, you can just know that lots of new monasteries were founded under the Normans. Not all of them survived for the long term, but actually quite a lot of them did survive. Um, Some of them survived all the way up until the 19th century, when uh, Italy was taken over by Napoleon. And um, that was when uh, a lot of monasteries in Italy got um, kind of disrupted, and the the Greek monasteries more or less fell out of use at that time. Um, But some of these monasteries, in particular the monasteries at Rossano and Messina, Uh, they survived all the way through the middle ages and they actually not only did they survive but they continued to use greek as a liturgical language for a very long time indeed all the way up until um in the 17th century um, there was uh, an effort they had been united i should say into a kind of they called it the Basilian order they the catholic church had united these greek monasteries into their own monastic order or federation Um, In the 17th century, it was decided to preserve these uh, monasteries' uh, archives and manuscript collections uh, by moving them from Calabria in the south of Italy up to Rome, uh, where they would uh, ultimately, to cut a long story short, they were divided into two major collections, one of which is today in the Vatican library and another of which is in the library of a monastery called Grotta Ferrata, just outside Rome. Um, In addition to this, uh, that was the the main source of a lot of these manuscripts. In addition, however, during the Renaissance there were a lot of Italian Renaissance book collectors um, who realized that Southern Italy was a great source of medieval Greek manuscripts. Now, of course, they weren't really interested in Byzantine nomocanons or anything like that. They were probably interested in other manuscripts of, say, classical Greek authors, Um, but In the process of acquiring manuscript collections, a lot of Renaissance book collectors happened to scoop up canon law manuscripts as well in that process. And so we also find a lot of the manuscripts from these monasteries in the Renaissance and the early modern period, they ended up being brought to places like Milan, where there's quite a lot of them in the Biblioteca Ambrosiana. There are a few in the Biblioteca Marciana in Venice. Uh, there are some in Florence as well, in the Biblioteca Laurenziana, and so on and so forth. Some also ended up in places like Paris and so on. So that's the monastic book collections. There is one other major source of these manuscripts, which is quite an interesting one, um, which is in the Salento Peninsula. That's the the heel of the Italian boot. The uh, in the uh, The later part of the Middle Ages, a very unusual but quite interesting uh, educational culture emerged there. Um, For whatever reason, it's not really clear why, but for some reason, monasteries were not as influential in the Salento Peninsula as they were in Calabria and Sicily. There were some monasteries there, but they didn't have such a dominant cultural role in producing and storing books. Um, In the Salento Peninsula, there were lots of Greek communities or Greek-speaking communities, um and they their education was carried out through parish schools which were overseen by the local priests of like the local church that they lived in and a number of these greek uh parishes <clears throat> or these greek priests they actually created what one scholar has referred to as dynasties of uh, manuscript copyists so um in case you're not familiar with this in the greek tradition priests are allowed to marry and have children and so um, many of them had families which, you know, where the, the father was a priest and then his son would be the priest and then his son would be the priest and so on. Um, and as part of their duties as priests, they were also in charge of local education in these parish schools. And in order to provide their parish schools with the kinds of resources necessary for education, uh, they would copy manuscripts. And a lot of these were things like manuscripts of classical Greek authors, but they also copied um, some canon law manuscripts as well. And they also kept um, older copies of those manuscripts, often in their the local parishes. So during the Renaissance, again, and mainly in the 16th century, a lot of Renaissance book collectors went to the Salento Peninsula and acquired um, medieval Greek manuscripts from these uh, parish schools as well. So those are the main sources. Uh, and then once uh, they got gathered into those Renaissance libraries like the Vatican Library and the Ambrosiana in Milan or the Marciana in Venice and so on. Um, Many of those libraries still exist today and you can still go and visit them and study the manuscripts there.
0: Right. Um, Can you give us a little bit of an overview, you know, like when did the Byzantine canon law lay its foundation in southern Italy?
1: Uh, yes, so the history of Byzantine canon law in southern Italy basically maps onto the history of Byzantine imperial rule in southern Italy. So, of course, uh, southern Italy had originally been part of the Roman Empire. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners will know that uh, from about the 5th century onwards, the Western Roman Empire collapsed um, and Roman rule was was ended over Italy. Um, However, the Eastern Roman Empire survived. We call it the Byzantine Empire today. And uh, Roman or Byzantine rule was uh, briefly restored in Italy by the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century during his Wars of Reconquest. Much of Italy was then lost again to a tribe called the Lombards. But the Byzantine Empire maintained control in two main areas. That is to say, in the center of Italy, around the cities of Rome and Ravenna, and then also in the south of Italy, so in Sicily and in Calabria and the Salento Peninsula. Um, however, in the 7th century, um, this is where the time when we have the rise of Islam, and uh, Muslim armies conquered Um, a huge area of the Byzantine Empire from it. So they took control of Syria and Egypt and North Africa. Uh, And then over the following centuries, it's quite a long process, but by the early 10th century, uh, Muslim armies from North Africa had also conquered Sicily as well. And they had begun to, uh, they temporarily occupied parts of the Southern Italian mainland too. So much of the early Middle Ages saw the Byzantines first of all trying to defend themselves uh, from attacks, from uh, mainly from Muslims, but also from other um, hostile powers as well, um, and then later on trying to re-establish their imperial control in southern Italy in particular. So, um, basically, from about the late ninth century onwards, the Byzantines began a series of efforts to re-establish control over southern Italy. Now. Um, that's uh, that's all well and good as far as the geopolitics goes, but what um, people it's easy to forget is that for the Byzantines, re-establishing imperial control did not just mean re-establishing military control or political control or economic control. Of course, it did mean all of those things. It also meant re-establishing ecclesiastical control, so spiritual or religious control. Um, Restoring Byzantine rule in these territories also entailed restoring Byzantine Christianity in these territories as well. During the time when uh, the south of Italy had been conquered, uh, parts of it by the Lombards, parts of it by uh, Muslim Arabs from North Africa, of course, a lot of the local population uh, some converted to Islam, perhaps, um, but many of them actually remained Greek Christians. So, when the Byzantines uh, came back into control in large parts of these areas, particularly in the 10th century, they had to restore the institutional framework of the Byzantine church, and then for the people who were still Christians, and then reconvert some of the people who had converted away from uh, Greek Christianity. So, It's really in this period in the late 9th and the 10th century when the Byzantine Empire is trying to reassert its control over southern Italy. Um, This is when we get an influx of uh, a lot of the, the, the earliest Byzantine canon law manuscripts into the region. We can presume that there were probably Byzantine canon law manuscripts before that. Way back in the sixth century or the seventh century, say, um, but a lot of well, those will basically all have been lost during the uh, the Lombard and the Islamic conquests. So it's really in the ninth and the tenth centuries with the return of Byzantine imperial rule. They also bring back the institutions of the Byzantine Church um, or what we would today call the Orthodox Church. Um, and with those institutions, they also bring with them their legal texts as well.
0: Right. Um, uh, but in the 11th century uh, the southern italy was brought under norm like norman rule right and um but then the interest and the norman uh, kingdom was under the authority of uh, roman church but then the interesting thing that happens is those norman rulers they did not interrupt you know like any pre-existing practices and they sort of enabled continued production and circulation of this byzantine normal canon um could you tell us why would you know, these Norman rulers want to prevent papal interference in southern Italy?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Um, So why the Normans, they were technically Roman Catholic, in fact, when they conquered the south of Italy, they did so, um, like as expressly as vassals of the Pope, it was the Pope who gave them the legal authority to conquer southern Italy. um, Because that so, of course, uh, Sicily at the time was still under Muslim control, but the mainland part of southern Italy was under the Byzantine control. Now, of course, the papacy wanted to um, remove Islamic control from Sicily and restore it to uh, Christendom. But he also wanted the, the popes also wanted to remove the Byzantines from mainland southern Italy as well, because the uh, the popes felt that the whole of southern Italy should be under their legal jurisdiction, um, whereas the Byzantine emperors had placed it under the jurisdiction of the patriarchs of Constantinople, so the popes wanted to get that back. And when the Normans conquered it, of course, they had their own self-interested reasons for conquering Southern Italy, but the the kind of legal pretext that they used to actually conquer it was that the pope had told them to bring it back under the, uh, the pope's jurisdiction, under the Church of Rome. So why is it then that the Normans uh, apparently didn't have a problem with the local people, the local Greek-speaking Christians, continuing to produce and use Byzantine canon law collections? Well, first of all, I have to say that we have to shed a lot of our modern preconceptions about the division between uh, Latin and Greek Christians or Catholic and Orthodox Christians. Um, In the modern day, we can kind of take it for granted that the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church are very separate institutions with their own uh, hierarchies and their own legal systems. And there is this very commonly um, asserted myth that in the year 1054... Um, supposedly the Catholic and Orthodox churches split apart in a schism. And then it's assumed that ever uh, after the year 1054, uh, the two churches were separate and kind of hostile to each other. This isn't true at all. There was no schism in 1054. Uh, what there was was a kind of um, localized conflict uh, it, in which tempers sort of briefly flared up and the like it had some lasting impact, but neither the Church of Rome nor the Church of Constantinople actually viewed each other as being a different church. They actually still, people generally thought at the time, at least up until the end of the 12th century, uh, many people in both Western Europe and in the Byzantine Empire still believed themselves to be part of the same church. They understood that there were certain administrative incompatibilities. And they did understand that there were some differences in uh, religious practices. But a lot of people actually still felt uh, that these differences were inconsequential, um, and they still viewed each other as being legitimate uh, co-religionists, let's say. So when the Normans take over southern Italy they don't view the Greeks there as heretics. They don't view them as following like the wrong religion that has to be stamped out. In fact, not even the popes viewed them in this way. So um, when uh, the Pope Urban II in the 1080s, he comes down to southern Italy, and uh, I think it's in 1089, and he has a council there. And um, he it's a sort of council to try to like integrate those Greek... Um, Christians of southern Italy into the Roman Catholic Church doesn't mention anything about changing their beliefs or their rituals or their practices or anything like that. Um, the bottom line is a very simple one. You have to accept the Pope as the ultimate uh, jurisdiction. You have to accept the Pope as being in charge, right? Uh, you have to pledge loyalty to me as the Pope, um, which it seems like most Greek Christians in southern Italy did. Um so they were the, the main request from the papacy was that they should be under the Pope's legal jurisdiction, no real request to change their beliefs or practices. And the Normans themselves, they had the same attitude. They didn't see them as being like people who had to be seriously changed. But there is still this point. The Pope wanted them to be under the Roman Church's jurisdiction. So surely that would mean also that they should be under the Roman Church's canon law. Um, and in theory, that you would be correct if that's what you're thinking. They should really have followed the Roman Church's canon law. Um, however, the Normans apparently really didn't care very much about that. They did not care much about what canon law the Greek Christians followed. And in fact, as far as the Normans were concerned, uh, the less cooperation there was between the Greek Christians and the Roman papacy, the better. And the reason for this is that even though the the papacy had given its legitimacy to the Norman conquest of southern Italy, the Normans had a very um, stormy relationship with the Roman popes over time. Because... As part of uh, giving the Normans this legitimate right to conquer Southern Italy, the popes felt that that should then entitle them to be in control of the Southern Italian church. Now, the thing you always have to remember when discussing the church in the Middle Ages uh, is also true to some extent in the modern day as well, is the church was not just a spiritual authority. It was also a major landowner. Uh, the church owned huge amounts of land or you know, different dioceses and monasteries were all you know, very large landowners. And if the pope had too great a control over the southern Italian church, he could potentially fill the uh, offices of different dioceses. He could install bishops or install abbots would be politically loyal to him Um, and as large landowners they would have access to quite a lot of wealth and resources and of course wealth and resources can bestow political power as well So if the Southern Italian Church is too closely aligned with the papacy, um, it could theoretically give the Pope a level of political influence in the Norman Kingdom of Sicily uh, that its rulers probably would not have been very comfortable with. And we know that they weren't comfortable with uh, papal political influence because they actually fought several wars against Popes as well, particularly in uh, the the 1130s. The very first king of Sicily, King Roger II, he had himself crowned the King of Sicily um, against the wishes of the Pope at the time. Um, he also, uh, there was, in the 1130s, there was a, a schism, there was a division between two different claimants to the papacy. Um, Roger, uh, the first Norman King of Sicily, he supported a rival claimant to the papacy called Anacletus, um, and actually Roger was excommunicated by the other Pope, uh, innocent, in return for this. Um, And ultimately, Anaclitus actually lost, um, but nonetheless, uh, Roger and his Norman forces uh, defeated uh, the Pope, uh, the the victorious Pope in battle, um, and forced him to recognize uh, Roger as the legitimate king of Sicily. Um, This actually happened a few times in Norman history, where the Pope had to be shown the error of his ways by force of arms, by Norman rulers, um, so the Normans themselves were by no means always friendly to the Roman papacy. So what does this mean for the Greeks of southern Italy then? well if they if you think about it uh, logically if they they are following their own Byzantine canon law and appointing their own Greek speaking bishops, um, and basically ignoring the Roman Church's hierarchy, um, that is absolutely fine by the Normans uh, because that reduces the political influence of the popes. In fact, it's even good for the, uh, actively good for the Norman rulers in some ways, because. In the Byzantine model of church-state religions in the Byzantine Empire, um, the emperor, the secular ruler, as I said earlier on, had quite a lot of influence over the church. You know, the secular ruler could even pass laws that affected the church and so on. Um, so, if the Greeks of southern Italy wanted to basically continue following their Byzantine legal norms, that was actually pretty good for the Norman rulers because then they could play the role of like the Byzantine emperor as the patron and they could be the one receiving the political influence and prestige rather than the pope
0: right um uh, this manuscripts uh, you mentioned in the book that this manuscripts in southern italy uh, were you know like read by a different group of people and it was kept in different institutions. And one of the institutions that you mentioned in book is, uh, you know, which sort of used, used this normal canons were some of the wealthy monasteries, such as Monastery of Rosanna and Messina. And they exercised a great deal of legal autonomy. Um, I was wondering if you could, you know, like a little bit uh, tell us a little bit about the, you know, if there were any practices that sort of legalized or like sort of recognized their uh, independence, like, you know, under Norman rulers.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so it's actually interesting because uh, to, in order to get that kind of legal independence, they have to have some kind of legal document from a higher power that confers that independence on them. Interestingly, um, they they started to, Greek monasteries in general, started to acquire some of these uh, documents, these kind of independence charters, Um, At an early date, there's evidence already in the 1080s before the kingdom of Sicily had been fully unified and consolidated by the Normans. um, There's evidence that already um, local Norman aristocrats were granting legal privileges to Greek monasteries. But the first major one um, was uh, the monastery of Rossano, the Patiron Monastery of Rossano, which was founded by um, a man called uh, Bartholomew of Cimmery. He was a Greek-speaking monk from the region of Calabria. Um, This was still a time before the consolidation of the Norman lands of southern Italy as a unified kingdom. So it was still a time when different regions were ruled by different local Norman rulers, basically. Um, So he was originally uh, patronized by uh, Roger II's father, Count Roger I, and a number of members of his court, Um, And he, uh, in fact, uh, Count Roger I of Sicily and Calabria, uh, who uh, helped support Bartholomew of Cimmery in uh, the creation of his monastery, Um, he had a number of members of his government, of his court, let's say. Um, In particular, um, uh, his uh, kind of prime minister or his chancellor um, was a Greek-speaking figure called Christodoulos. A lot of the Normans' courtiers and high-ranking members of government were actually Greeks themselves. Uh, Christatholos gave quite a lot of uh, financial support to this monastery. But there was a dispute in the year 1105 um, between, interestingly, not between the monastery and the rulers or the monastery in the Roman church, but actually a dispute between the, this monastery, which was Greek, and then the local bishop of Rossano, who was also a Greek. Uh, but the local bishop wanted to get control of the monastery so that he could also get control of the revenues of the monastery. So in response to this, Bartholomew traveled to Rome, where he went to uh, meet the pope at the time, and he actually requested from the pope... Um, a charter exempting him from the authority of the local archbishop, um, which the Pope granted to him. Um, Later on, however, in the year 1130, when Roger II uh, created the Kingdom of Sicily, and this, of course, put him at war with the Pope at the time. He was excommunicated. So as a safety measure, um, the monastery of Rossano but then also went to Roger II and asked him to grant them uh, a legal charter exempting them from the authority of the local archbishop. Um, and then, uh, more famously, the Monastery of the Holy Saviour in Messina itself also received such a legal charter um, from Roger II, and it survives. Um, and it's very interesting to read a lot of the, uh, the stipulations of this legal charter. So it mentions... Uh, that the abbots uh, of the monastery will have full legal autonomy um, to judge any legal cases that arise within monastery lands uh, and also within um, the the monasteries that were governed from the Holy Saviour. So um, in the Byzantine world, there would, uh, there would often be these kind of small federations of monasteries where one monastery would be in charge and then it would have various subject monasteries known as metochia in Greek. Uh, so um, in Roger, uh, Roger's charter for the monastery is written in Greek itself, interestingly, um, and it uses a lot of Byzantine language for things like this. So it says that uh, the abbot also will have jurisdiction over um, the, his own metochia as well as his own monastery um these charters would continue to be granted um at various intervals actually some of the latest ones are in the early 13th century when another uh, ruler of southern italy uh, from a different dynasty this time not the norman de dynasty but um the german hohenstaufen dynasty um southern italy the kingdom of sicily came under the the rule of the holy roman empire of what is basically modern day Germany and Austria and Switzerland. Um, It came under the Holy Roman Empire in the 1190s. Um, And then in the 13th century, the early 13th century, uh, the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, Frederick II, um, actually used the kingdom of Sicily as kind of his own base of power. And that's where he resided a lot of the time. Um, He also, like Roger II, had a huge falling out with the papacy and got himself excommunicated, actually several times. Um, And in his case, he also granted uh, charters of legal independence uh, to some of these Greek monasteries like the Holy Savior. Um, Later on, uh, eventually in the 1260s, the papacy actually sponsored a French invasion by um, Charles of Anjou. Uh, The papacy sponsored him to invade southern Italy and take it back uh, for the like kind of To be ruled on behalf of the papacy, as it had always been intended to be. Um, And once the Angevins, once Charles of Anjou and his descendants uh, took over in southern Italy, they actually did start to enforce the papal will a lot more thoroughly, and a lot of these monasteries finally lost their independence then.
0: Right. Um, Now, um, what about the secular churches then? Did you find anything similar talking about their independence too?
1: Uh, That's an interesting question. Um, The secular churches were in a bit of a different position. Um, For them, uh, when it comes to the level of individual, like local parish churches, we really have very few records, if any at all, about a lot of them. What we do have are some records relating to big cathedrals where there would have been bishops or archbishops, Uh, particularly Rossano, for example. We have some evidence from that. And so the evidence is extremely limited. We can't really say very much about uh, a lot of things in detail. But in the case of Rossano, actually, we do have some quite uh, interesting clues about what was happening. Um, So uh, we have uh, a normal canon from the city of Rossano, um, which is today in the Vatican Library. It's, uh, in case you're interested, it's Vaticanus Caracas 2019. And this is, Um, From the early 13th century, um, we know from inscriptions within the manuscripts that it was made at some point before the year 1235. And this is a copy of a Byzantine canon law uh, codification called the Synopsis of Canons, and it has a commentary by a 12th century Byzantine scholar called Alexios Aristinos. Now, this is interesting, right, because Alexios Aristinos wrote his commentary around about the year 1130. That's actually quite a long time after the Norman Conquest, which implies uh, that the Greeks of suddenly Italy were in fact still staying up to date on some Byzantine canon law texts that were produced even after the Norman Conquest. Um, it's a bit of a weird manuscript because although this is definitely Alexios Aristinos' commentary, in this one manuscript it is attributed to an entirely different person called Nilos Doxapatris, um, I wrote an article about that um, in case anyone is interested. Um, but uh, leaving that issue to one side for a moment, um, the manuscript belonged to a family called the Malinos family. Um, and actually, uh, the um, Oh no, sorry, I should clarify this. It belonged to uh, a figure called, uh, who belonged to the um, De Cretena family. However, it was based on an earlier copy that belonged to a judge uh, of the Malenos family. Um, anyway, uh, to cut a long story short here, basically, um, it's a canon law manuscript that belonged to a local Greek judge from a, a prominent Greek family. Um, and it was based on an earlier manuscript from the late 12th century uh, that belonged to another judge from another prominent family. Um, to simplify things a little bit here, basically, what we see from these manuscripts uh, is clear evidence that um, one or two uh, elite families in the city of Rossano had been uh, monopolizing the roles of both the local civil judges, so the secular judges, and then also the role of bishop as well. In fact, we even have evidence of a figure from the early uh, 13th century um, who was a secular judge, who was then promoted to being uh, the bishop of the city, um, completely against both uh, Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox canon law at the time, interestingly, violating both standards. The situation we seem to see is that the local Greek elites had kind of monopolized both uh, civil and ecclesiastical authority in the city. And from the fact that they were still reading and using Byzantine canon law texts, we can uh, infer <clears throat> we can infer that um, they were basically operating outside the papal legal system outside the Roman Catholic system of canon law. So in this one instance, we do have a very clear piece of evidence um, that yes, the secular church could also operate with quite a large degree of independence. The problem is that we really only have this one main piece of evidence. Uh, from this one city of Rossano. So we can't say quite so much about what happened in other areas of southern Italy. However, I think it is a reasonable supposition that in some areas, particularly, say, in Calabria, where local, there were areas of Calabria which were overwhelmingly dominated by Greek-speaking populations, um, I think it's fair to assume that they probably did uh, continue to follow Byzantine canon law there as well. At least to some degree,
0: right? Um, uh, how did these monasteries and churches, you know, which were adhering to uh, the Byzantine canon law, despite being subject to papal jurisdiction, um, they sort of viewed the relation to the Latin pope who was sitting at, in in the Rome in Rome. Can, can you talk about you know this relation, like uh, the relation of? Uh, these Italo-Greek monasteries and churches, and how they viewed uh, uh, the Latin Pope?
1: Yeah, this is a very good question. Um, They actually have extremely little to say about the Latin Pope. Um, The canon law manuscripts themselves, the normal canons, when I started this research, I genuinely expected to see some traces of Latin canon law, maybe some kind of Western influence. Um, but there's really nothing, like there's nothing at all. It's all Byzantine. They completely ignored contemporary uh, Latin canon law until, um, as I said earlier on, in the 13th century, things do start to change, particularly after the 1260s. The Roman Catholic papacy really starts to assert itself and its authority. After that point, we do actually start to see the, well, they basically switch over to Latin canon law eventually. And we, in the early to middle of the 13th century, we see some linguistic traces. Like um, we actually see some parts of canon law manuscripts translated into Latin. Like people wrote a Latin translation of parts of the manuscripts in the margins in 13th century handwriting. The reason for this most likely is that the people themselves, the Greek Christians themselves, had actually started to speak more Latin than Greek and they were losing their ling- their kind of linguistic command. So they, they started to translate some things into Latin. But up until the 13th century, uh, they basically, uh, it's as if the, the Catholic church or the, the Roman papacy, it's as if it doesn't exist practically. Now, of course, that can't really have been what things were like. Uh, in practice, I'm sure uh, um, people in many places people really were you know, aware of the influence and power of the Latin Church, but if you look at the canon law manuscripts, it might as well not be there. Um, in fact, some of the manuscripts, uh, the, the the most the biggest traces of like awareness of the Catholic Church comes in some manuscripts from the Salento Peninsula from the late 12th and the 13th century, um, where certain canon laws which um, comment on points of difference between the Greek and the Latin traditions, like married priests, for example. Certain canon laws that refer to priests being allowed to marry would be highlighted, and some of the manuscripts contain these little annotations, uh, which in Greek reads like uh, kata latinon, which means against the Latins. Uh, but other, apart from that, yeah, they, they it's as if they're living in completely different worlds. Um, From other sources besides the canon law manuscripts, um, the Roman popes are occasionally mentioned in things like uh, the lives of saints. Um, They, uh, yeah, like the the pope who granted legal privileges to the patron of Rossano, for example, is mentioned. But the Greek writers almost never mention anything about um, the Pope being a Latin figure or being like anything different from a figure in the Byzantine Church. I would describe it as almost a kind of willful ignorance, um, like almost like they're pretending that they're, they, they're still, they still clearly felt that they were part of the world of the Byzantine Church and Byzantine Christianity. Uh, And it's interesting as well, when you look at the way they refer to the Norman kings, they refer to the Norman kings using the kind of language that they would have used for the Byzantine emperor as well. So it's almost like they've created this kind of pretense uh, that they're still part of the Byzantine empire. um, And they just sort of try to ignore the Pope as much as possible.
0: Right. Um, So the legal order that emerges in southern Italy during the period, it seems quite complex. And I think even in the book, you mentioned that it's not... You know only the difference between the state and the church laws but also you have like different ethnic group practicing their you know on ethnic laws um what does it tell us about the medieval legal system you know and how do you make sense mm-hmm. of it
1: yeah it's a great question um so the 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 term that i think <clears throat> best encapsulates what you're describing here is the concept of legal pluralism um, legal pluralism is an idea or a, a way of study approaching the study of law, uh, which has become quite popular since about the nineteen eighties, um, uh, at least uh, uh, in in the modern way that the term is used. Uh, basically, this is the recognition that within society there exist multiple different legal orders and actually different degrees of legal formality as well. So when we think about the law in a modern country, we'll often think about the, you know, the, the national, like uh, secular or civil law of that particular country. Um, so in France, you might have the Code Civil. In uh, England, you would have, you know, English common law and so on. That's what most people think of when they think of law. Um, but Outside of those very formal national legal systems, we have all sorts of di- uh, different kinds of rules that we have to follow. So for example, um, <clears throat> there might be um, codes of conduct to a, a business organization or an educational organization. Now it's not strictly speaking law, but there's still rules that we really follow, right? And those individual institutions might enforce those rules within their own premises and sometimes even outside their premises. Um, The same is true in the Middle Ages with their legal system, but actually just on a much bigger scale, because the concept of um, a kind of law of the state was much weaker, uh, and particularly the idea that the law of the state should be overriding was much weaker in the Middle Ages than it is today. It was generally accepted in medieval society, not just southern Italy, but actually everywhere in the western medieval world at least, it was generally accepted that... Uh, Yes, the king or the emperor would have his laws, but then the church would have their laws, and then merchants' guilds would have their laws. And then if there were ethnic minorities living in a country, well, this ethnic minority would have its own law. It's often would be referred to in modern terms as like customary law. Um, And then this other ethnic minority, they would have their law. Um, And this is actually how things operated in southern Italy as well, not just in terms of church law, but also in terms of civil law. So in addition to the royal law of the Norman kings, um, there would also, of course, be the law of the Latin church. There would be the law of the Greek church. Then there was the traditional kind of customary law of the Lombard peoples. There was the traditional customary law of the uh, Greek peoples as well. They, in fact, still followed many Byzantine laws, even under Norman rule. Um, And then I haven't even touched upon Islamic law as well. In Sicily, because Sicily had been under Muslim rule for a very long time. um, In fact, a lot of Muslims would continue to observe Islamic uh, law as well for a significant amount of time, um, even under Christian rule. Um, So this was just a sort of aspect of medieval society that was widely accepted at the time there was not uh, any kind of assumption that everyone should always follow exactly the same law of course when it comes to things like royal law there was an expectation that royal law kind of overrided other people's laws so for example um the Byzantine customary law of the Greek speakers of southern Italy, um, if there was some Norman royal law that conflicted with one of their customary laws, then the royal law would be assumed to have precedence. Uh, But generally speaking, um, they were very very pluralistic indeed. In the Norman kingdom, uh, again, not just within the church, but even within the uh, secular legal system, Different ethnic communities even had their own judges. So in Calabria, for example, <clears throat> surviving records refer to officials with titles like the judge of the Latins and the judge of the Greeks. Um, this we also see evidence of this in Messina and Sicily too.
0: Right. Um, uh, despite this apparent non-intervention from the Latin authorities, in your book you also, uh, you know, like talk about. Roman churches growing intolerance against the Greek rites, you know, and, and, and it becomes very apparent regarding the subject of clerical marriage, especially between the Salated Greek clergy and Latin churches. Uh, can you talk about this a bit for us?
1: Yes, absolutely. Actually, I would say, so you're right, clerical marriage is one of the big areas of friction. There were a few different areas of conflict and friction between Latin and Greek Christians in the Middle Ages. Um, one of them was the fact that Uh, that um, Greek priests would usually grow beards, whereas Latin Western priests would usually be clean-shaven. Latin priests had to observe celibacy, um, kind of there was a monastic influence on them. It was expected, although many Latin priests did not observe celibacy, some of them even got married as well, but it was expected that they should ideally not have wives and therefore be celibate as well. Uh, whereas in the Greek church, and still in the Orthodox church to this very day, um, it was seen as perfectly acceptable for a priest to be married and to have children. Um, and uh, actually, the, the, the Latin church, the Church of Rome, basically tolerated this for the most part, although not always with uh, great happiness. There was another controversy as well, however, um, in the 1230s under uh, Pope Gregory the IX, Um, when there was a a controversy over whether or not the Greek baptismal rite was valid, because in in short, basically, um, when Latins baptized someone, uh, they would say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whereas when Greeks did it, they would say, so-and-so like they would say your name is baptized and uh so there was a controversy briefly where it was worried that maybe uh the greek form of baptism was not valid and the problem is that if the greek form of baptism was not valid then it meant that the greeks were not christians because they weren't baptized and if they weren't christians then they couldn't be priests so like overnight it could potentially uh basically invalidate the entire greek church in southern italy Um, And there was even briefly an attempt to force all the Greeks to be rebaptized following the Latin rite. Um, They ultimately did protest against this. And in the end, the pope decided to give way and didn't force them to be rebaptized. That's the only example of a a major conflict that arose at the papal court. Um, There are, I could mention various conflicts over administrative matters, but when it comes to matters of belief and practice, that's the, the biggest one. However, you mentioned clerical marriage, and this is something that was apparently quite a large issue at a more local level. Um, so, you um, like I say, it was common for Greek priests to be married and have children, but Latin priests were not supposed to. Um, and it seems like the, the Catholic church or the Latin church was very concerned about the possibility of this happening in the Middle Ages. Um, they even passed uh, rules saying things like, um, that, you know, Latin priests were not allowed to stay in Greek communities except under certain conditions and so on. And there's evidence, um, particularly from the Salento Peninsula, Um, from the writings of uh, a monk there called uh, Nectarios of Otranto, also known as Nicholas of of Otranto. Um, We have some of this uh, particular monk's letters that he sent uh, to uh, other Greeks uh, or Greek communities in the Salento Peninsula, and he mentions um, arguments and disputes between Greek and Latin clergy about things like um, whether it's okay to be married um, and we see um, a lot of evidence and kind of low level sources of, well, I should say, we see evidence and sources of low level conflicts and arguments that happened quite a lot uh, between the Latins and the Greeks. In the case of the nomocanons, this is manifested, I mentioned it earlier on, but I'll uh, mention it again. This is manifested particularly in a group of Salentine nomocanons from the late 12th and the 13th centuries um, that specifically highlight. Certain texts within the canon law collection that mention priests having wives and they highlight them with this expression cata latino or against the Latins. So, what does this imply? Well, it implies that um, there was maybe some kind of disputes uh, around whether or not those Greek priests should be allowed to marry, um, and so. Uh, those Greek clergy, uh, who who seem to have been the main producers and users of these noble canons in the Santa, was more the priests rather than the monks for some reason. Um, But it seems like these Greek clergy turned to their collections of Byzantine canon law to try to find legal texts that justified why they should be allowed to marry and have wives. Now, of course, what they um, may not have fully appreciated was the fact that Uh, Latin canon law texts were somewhat different from Byzantine ones, even though they had a lot of similarities. The, The Latin canon law had changed quite a lot. Uh, to diverge from Byzantine canon law. But nonetheless, they apparently turned to Byzantine canon law to try to find explanations and justifications for why priests should be allowed to marry. But it's not just that as well. They also mention it um, over issues like whether priests should be bearded or clean-shaven. Also, fasting is a big issue as well, um, because during the period of Lent, Uh, Greek Christians and Latin Christians would observe different fasting practices. And this apparently was a a bone of some contention between the two, uh, presumably because it was a very uh, visible difference between the two communities, where they each felt that the other one was doing this important practice in the wrong way.
0: Right. Um... So, and the developments that were taking place in the 13th century, such as demise of Norman rule and 4th Crusade, it sort of creates a condition for the papal intervention and and, and centralization of religious institutions under Rome, right? Um, And it must have, like, you know, impinged on the legal independence that the Italo-Greek churches were enjoying previously. Um, Can you tell us uh, what happens in southern Italy post-13th century?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, you mentioned the Fourth Crusade. This is a watershed moment, in fact, uh, for the papacy's rela- uh, relations, um, not just with the Greek Christians of the Byzantine Empire in the east, uh, but also with the Greek Christians of southern Italy as well. Um, so the, the Fourth Crusade, which happened in 1204, um, basically saw a crusading army, which was originally intended for Egypt. Um, instead was diverted to Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, which it captured and sacked. Um, and uh, effectively, they, they established a Latin crusader state in the Byzantine Empire. They called it the, the Latin Empire of Romania, because uh, Romania was the term that was used actually for the Byzantine Empire at the time. Um, And what this meant was that a very large number of Greek Christians in Constantinople and also in Greece itself um, were now brought under uh, the rule of this crusader state, which was, of course, Catholic. And it's kind of funny, actually, because whereas the 11th century papacy had been fairly laid back about incorporating the Greeks of southern Italy into its own structures, they had basically said, like, as long as you accept our jurisdiction, we'll leave you alone, more or less. Um, in this case, in the 13th century, the papacy was no longer quite so relaxed or laid back about it. And this... Uh, The success of the Fourth Crusade in establishing this crusader state in the Byzantine Empire's former lands uh, meant that the Roman papacy had to uh, now, um, like for the first time really, formulate a more detailed legal policy towards how it would treat Greek Christians. Um, and it did this um, at the Fourth Lateran Council of the year 1215. A number of the canons that this council produced, because the Latin church in this period was still issuing new canons at various church councils, um, it produced a number of canons that dealt specifically with Um, the spiritual and administrative relations between the Church of Rome and Greek Christians. Um, And more specifically, uh, it it tries to assert greater Roman central control over Greek Christianity and over um, the, the legal jurisdiction of Greek Christians. So this actually meant that um, the rules that were formulated for the Greeks of the Byzantine Empire or this new crusader state that was set up there were now applicable also to the Greeks of southern Italy. Now, this was actually a time when southern Italy, I mentioned him earlier, but it was ruled by um, and the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, uh, Hohenstaufen. Um, who really did not get on well with the popes at all. He got excommunicated multiple times. And Frederick actually helped to basically shield the Greeks of Southern Italy from this papal intervention. Um, But ultimately, um, by the 1260s, when the Hohenstaufen had been overthrown, they were replaced by the Angevins, who were much more pro-papacy. Following this, um, the Greeks of Southern Italy finally were forced to accept all of this; these, the terms of the Fourth Lateran Council, and they were forced to uh, basically accept a much greater degree of Roman uh, legislative control. At the same time as this, there were also cultural and social changes that had been happening over a much longer time period. Um, whereas the Normans of the 12th century had uh, generally employed a lot of Greek speakers within their government and administration. And so there was no real pressure for Greeks to uh, start learning Latin, for example. Um, By the 13th century... Um, the uh, government administration of the Kingdom of Sicily was much more Latin in character. This was also a period when some of the first European universities were emerging, Um, and in order to become uh, a high-level government administrator, for example, a person had to have a a good university education, and of course university education was done in Latin in southern Italy, Um, so even Greek speakers had to start learning how to speak Latin. And while it does seem that um, lower classes within society actually continued to speak Greek for a very long time, uh, in fact, um, even today, there are parts of southern Italy where, you know, tend to be small villages with older generations that still speak a dialect of Greek, um, the uh, upper classes of Greek society began to learn more and more Latin so that they could maintain their privileged status. Uh, And eventually, it seems that by... The late 13th and the 14th century, um, in fact, many of these uh, upper and also upper middle class Greeks in southern Italy had begun to forget how to speak Greek. They had become much more uh, fluent in Latin. So um, many of them also not only, not only did these Greeks end up having to be put under papal jurisdiction, but many of them also just kind of assimilated um, into that Latin Christian society as well.
0: Great. Um, thank you so much. Um, the last question that I have for you today is, um, is there any new project that you are working on now? Can you tell us any anything about your future projects or anything you have? Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. So um, at the present time, um, I am working on a new project, um, which uh, is very generously funded by the Hong Kong Research Grants Council. Um, I've decided to move away from... Uh, <clears throat> decided to move away from the specific case of Southern Italy. As interesting it is as it is, uh, onto the Byzantine Empire itself. And um, my current project uh, is uh, provisionally called, uh, at least the title it currently has, is uh, Law and Orthodoxy Colon. Uh, legal scholarship in the Byzantine church circa 1050 uh, to 1204. Um, and so what that is looking at is the development of uh, scholarship in Byzantine canon law, basically. Um, so this was a period when um, a lot of the codifications of Byzantine canon law became like formalized in the late 11th and the 12th centuries. Uh, and the 12th century was a time in particular Um, which is sometimes referred to as the golden age of Byzantine canon law. The three most influential uh, Orthodox canon law scholars of all time all lived in the 12th century, Um, Alexios Aristinos, John Zonaras, and Theodore Balsamon. But in addition to those three, there are also several other scholars who are much less well-known. And so my current project is basically tracing the development of that legal scholarship from the 11th through to the early 13th centuries and looking at how the development of that legal scholarship may have contributed to um, the identity of the Orthodox Church as a a separate legal institution apart from that of the Roman Church at the time. There's been a lot of great scholarship on the history of uh, canon law in the Roman Church in this time period, and how the development of Roman canon law uh, contributed to the institutional character of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Um, There's been much less scholarship on this question for the Byzantine Church, and so that's That's what I would like to try to expand upon with my current research.
0: Great. Um, This brings um, to the end of our conversation. Thank you so much, James, for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much.